Is this episode 68? I don't know. No, this can just be it. Cause it's 67B. Mm-hmm. Sure. Let's call it a special episode with, with Chris. Super special. Super special. Super duper extra ultra special. Okay. Ready? Yep. Hey, welcome to Super Duper Extra Ultra Special Episode 67B with... Part 2. Part 2. Part 2B. Part 2B.1 with Chris Wilson. Um, This is what I was told to call this episode by Blake. You can blame him for that. Uh, We're going to continue our talk of of just basically games probably and... And and a bit of food. And possibly a bit of food. Is the the old tradition of Genghis still still happening with uh, new employees? No, we we scaled oh, up too much to, oh, to no. stop. Well, who was the oh, last? No. Who was the last? Um, I can't remember because I I think I was fairly late on that. Like yeah. I was I I got in on the the Genghis ser- the, for for listeners. There was a tradition for new employees to go have dinner with the, the founders of the company. Um, but obviously, as the company grows more and more, and people get busy and have lives, it becomes mm-hmm. harder and harder to do that. Well, well, yeah. I I remember when I joined, it was probably like six months until you guys said, "Hey, we." We take new employees to. Uh, <laughs> oh, I've been here six months. <laughs> I went with a, a couple of other like newer employees as well. Yeah, it's been a number of years since we've done that. Mm. Partly because like weekends get busy with business mm. calls and that yeah. kind of stuff. Because if you're dealing with countries, uh, companies in other countries, then evening is when you can talk to them because yeah. they're awake then. Mm. Yeah. How has um, being in New Zealand made running this company more difficult and and, uh, and are there any advantages to running a company in new zealand oh it's fine it's still on <laughs> earth right you're not on the moon it's okay this is well at least on the moon you'd have probably like, um better we, time it, zones. it couldn't be anywhere else because we're in new zealand we weren't going to go overseas to create it mm-hmm. you know? yeah so i mean new zealand like comparing with other countries you don't really get tax breaks like in vancouver you get a lot of subsidization so we don't and interesting that's, that's fine the government gets a bit of money on other things yeah um it's fine to hire staff you've got the i mean while new zealand has a smaller pool of people there's good schools like media design mm. school is excellent and we've got a lot of artists from there um it's not a problem to get visas for international people generally if they're good and the company's in good standing so that's okay that's you good. have the attraction of being able to tell the staff you get to live in new zealand and show them newzealand.com which is not mm. entirely a lie it just doesn't show auckland <laughs> so does it not <laughs> there, are, there are parts of auckland that are all right i've seen yeah. which seen, Hey man, wait the a parks, minute. <laughs> the parts where you can't see much but trees. There was when I walked up Mount Eden and realized I was standing on the rim of oh, the volcano. Yeah. That was a cool moment for yep. me. Everything's a volcano in Auckland. Yeah, yeah, I think that's awesome. Like I was, so, people like to 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 crap on Auckland, but I this city is awesome. Like, it's awesome until you get a new volcano, which happened <laughs> oh, yeah. a couple of hundred years ago with with Rangitoto. Oh yep, everyone's just mighty there in business and then lava. E- yes, yeah, it's but I mean. But that's done now, right? <laughs> On average, every 200 years, would you? Uh-oh. Uh, and Rangi Toto was when? That was a couple hundred years ago. Okay, cool. So, cool. Next one's coming up real quick. Mm. Um, so we were talking about uh, business models a little bit on the last podcast uh, towards the end of the episode. I wanted to talk about where do you think uh, the business model of video games is headed? Like we've had some, uh, there's been a pretty clear shift to, towards free to play over the last 
you know, five years, give or take. Um, probably more than that at this point, really. Um, and we've had some huge, like, cosmetic free-to-play successes like uh, Dota 2. Um, and we've had, I mean, boxed games are still a thing. And we've had some hybrid models where you buy a game and there's some, like, microtransaction stuff in there, like Overwatch. Um, where do you think... Do you think there's going to be a new model? What, what do you think is the future of games? I feel that the most important advancement in business models in the last couple of decades has been about price discrimination, where initially you have two prices for a game. You've got the price it costs to buy it, and you've got the price it costs to pirate it. Mm. And you're going to pay either one or the other, where piracy is a buck or two for some discs, and buying the game is 60 bucks or whatever. Yeah. US. And so those are the two models, and people would pick whichever one you know they could afford. Sure. And so... With free-to-play, you get the interesting thing where people can pay however much they can afford. The guy who would pirate the game doesn't pay any money because he's not going to pay any money, but mm-hmm. might convert to one who does later if he gets addicted to the game and you know, wants to buy something. And someone who is going to spend money who would happily have paid 60 bucks before, they might be willing to treat it like a hobby where over time they'll spend hundreds, if not thousands of dollars. Mm-hmm. Like, people have hobbies. They build model train sets. They do skydiving. They collect Magic the Gathering cards, in my case. You know, they do things. And hobbies do cost quite a lot of money when you're doing them professionally. Yeah. You know, some people's hobby is drinking, and that costs them a lot of money. <laughs> it's just a thing where people will spend money on something they enjoy that kind of defines their life. And for a few people, that's a free-to-play game, like Path of Exile. And they can yep. spend thousands, if not tens of thousands of dollars. So with previous games where you can sell it for 60 bucks, you could only get the 60 bucks from the rich guy who's willing to make it his life. And he'd have to spend the money on other things, like buying collectibles off eBay related to your game. Mm-hmm. So that's why people make collector's editions, because now you can get 200 bucks from the rich guy who's really, really keen on your product. Right. Free-to-play gives you the ability to get an unlimited amount of money, but then you have to be responsible. And the way everyone's doing free-to-play right now, including us to some extent, isn't probably how it's going to end up, right? There's... There's things like mystery boxes in games that at some stage there'll probably be legislation about to you know make sure everyone's responsible. And while we try to be responsible, you know I'm sure the legislation will affect the way that we have to treat our mystery boxes. Sure. For example, in China, the new the new legislation this year requires that you disclose all of the odds. Mm-hmm. And so now that we see that happening in China, we figure it's not too long before it happens elsewhere. And so we've made sure with our last few mystery boxes to be pretty clear about how all the math works with them. Yeah. And so we want to stay ethically, you know, above board and all of the stuff. Yeah. Other game companies, of course, will have to change. There's more, but there's a lot of bad stuff happening with business models in the game industry. And I'm hoping that there's enough outcry for consumers on the things that they don't like. Um, you know, for example, directly paying for power in, in competitive games, right. that it does cause more and more companies to come up with something which works well for the customers as well as for themselves. Yeah, all, all, that's, that that seems very fair to me. Um, are there any games recently whose business models you learned anything from? I enjoyed seeing in Fortnite the model where when you get your mystery box there's a chance it upgrades to an even higher tier of mystery box when you open it which they did they've got this pinata which you hit physically uh-huh. and so there's a chance that when you hit the pinata made of paper that inside's a metal like a silver one and then when you hit there's a chance it becomes gold and gets a top hat on it that's uh-huh. pretty and they cool. did it I mean they, they made literally Unreal Engine because they're right. epic so yeah. they did a great job of making it look really cool but it's that moment of like hitting the ultra jackpot which is cool and I'm not saying there's going to be mystery boxes inside mystery boxes in Path of Exile but right. I do think that that's a way of injecting additional feel-good moments into that process of opening, or relatively mundanely opening a mystery box to get the best things out of it. Right. Um, I mean, and traditionally, at least with us, we have not seemed to put much uh, uh, sort of time and money towards the uh, experience of getting a microtransaction, or like, and that includes opening up mystery boxes where you would you would just purchase the thing and then the thing would turn into a different thing in your inventory yeah, you, you mean the um 
like when Blizzard, you open a mystery box and it's like a big thing with a nice It's got its own section. It's got its own know, screen. It's all, yeah. it's all handcrafted to feel as nice and rewarding as possible. Yeah. I mean, this We're happens. just like, you just buy it and you got it. Yeah. If you're um, making a game where you expect to make like $100 million through mystery boxes, like some of these big games would make, given the $100 million thing, if you can pay your crack team of perfect best-in-the-world UI experts mm-hmm. to just make the best thing and it costs you a few hundred K or a million dollars or something and improves the feel-good feelings people get from opening the boxes by even a few percent, it's a massive win. Yeah. Of course, in our case, the scale is a bit lower, so we can't go and afford said crack team. Right. But when we did the microtransaction revamp a few months ago, we made sure to at least have some experience for opening the mystery boxes that was better than right-clicking and then the thing changes. Yeah. And we've, we've actually updated that a fair amount for the next ones. It looks yes. a bit better. Yeah, I've seen some of that stuff internally, and it looks good. Um, I remember thinking uh, Hearthstone's card opening, like pack opening experience was very, very good. Um, and Until even, you open like 50 of them? Yes. Actually, that is a really good point. <laughs> yeah. That is a system that does not scale well, where you open a pack and then have to check every card in the pack. Mm. And there's only five cards, but you know, at the start of a new expansion or whatever, you buy 50-plus packs that's you know a lot of cards you have to click on um uh what do you uh, this sort of relates to another question i've had which is like uh repetitive behaviors in games um there are some positive aspects to having repetitive behaviors and path of exile in fact sort of leans on some of these repetitive behaviors um and then there's like the point where repetitive behavior becomes annoying how how have you had to um, sort of distinguish between those two? Like, what, what do you find helps in, in creating positive repetitive behaviors versus annoying repetitive behaviors? An example of a repetitive behavior, as far as I'm concerned, is something like in Path of Exile, your inventory gets full and you've got to go back to town to either control click the stuff into your stash or yeah. control click it into the vendor. Yeah. And decisions have to be made there. Yeah. And one could argue that to eliminate this, we could add some system where you can do it from the field. Mm-hmm. But in this case, that behavior comes with like the ability to take a bathroom break, the ability to get your mm-hmm. quest rewards, the ability to complete a trade you were trying to do, the, the ability to actually just take a break from playing for tonight because you look at the time and realize you've got to go to work in three hours or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so there's good aspects to some types of repetitive behavior. There are also things where the community make it really clear that they're just sick of doing something over and over when it's annoying. Mm-hmm. And so in those cases, it's important the developer listens to the feedback. And you know, we've, we've tried very hard to take that into account when people are vocal about certain things they don't like. Mm. Um, let's ask another question from a, from a user here. Um, ooh, this is a good one. This is one we asked a few people. Um, this is from Oscilix. What are your top three game design concepts an ARPG should have. So we have a lot of pillars we built Path of Exile on. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe that itemization that has a heavy amount of randomness is important, and there's a lot of things that make good items. And this is a very broad, very broad topic to get into. But an example of something that affects items is ideally you should be able to feel each individual item mod. Now, sometimes we don't achieve that in Path of Exile. Can you really feel the last plus eighteen life that you have? Maybe not, but. In general, we try very hard to make it so that in the, the absence of the mod is something your character can feel. Mm-hmm. And this is achieved a lot better than certain games where they just have too many slots. Like if you look at a character in an average MMO and the number of mods that are on each item, mm. you get to the point where there are several hundred things affecting you from items. Mm. And this is one reason why we don't have a pants slot, you know, because right. there's no, and we don't have, you know, more than one ring, for example, on each hand and so on. It's very easy to spam a lot of slots because it feels better to have more or to make a new type of rare, which can have 11 mods rather than six on it. Right. 
but it's not necessarily going to help. It just dilutes things. So anyway, mm -hmm. that's an example of a pillar there. Um, the second thing that's very important to us is random levels. It's for action RPGs, it's critical that whenever you play the content, it feels remixed slightly because it helps your brain think you're having a new experience, which you are, even though you have played through the mudflats a couple of times by now. Sure. And so the more levels of randomness that we can add in there, like maybe you encounter Elrion, maybe you encounter Haku, maybe there's a tormented yeah. spirit, maybe there's a prophecy. There's all sorts of things which make the experience different than the last time. And of mm -hmm. course, when a few of them combine together, you get really crazy situations where you know, two types of tormented spirits have jumped into the same essence monster and there's whatever aura near it and so on right. and so on. Um, sorry, before, before we, I'm curious because we have a lot of random elements and every league, there's always a chance that we add another random element into the world. Um, and uh, I always struggled for games like League of Legends with the idea of memorizing 120 different characters, each with four skills and then all of their possible loadouts and all of this and having to uh, understand what beats what. Um, and this is a problem that like collectible card games like Magic the Gathering face where in the standard format, there's probably a few hundred cards you have to remember. But then in the vintage format, there's, you know, thousands. Um, and we're getting to a point where there's a lot of mechanics in Path of Exile. Mm -hmm. Have you considered what... Um, that sort of burden of knowledge, what impact that has on, say, new players or returning players? Certainly. And we try very hard to meter stuff out so that it gets introduced at certain points in the game. So it's not just a big spam of everything occurring at once. Mm -hmm. But some mechanics are okay if they are self-explanatory. Like, for example, the Tormented Spirits. You encounter one, you think, what is that? This usually leads players to try to kill it. And when you kill it, you get an item. And you can just treat the Tormented Spirits as a guaranteed rare. You kill them, you get an item. Okay, mm -hmm. so that's better than most monsters in Path of Exile. Except over time, you'll realize that chasing them into other monsters get nets you more items overall. And so that's a mechanic there where it doesn't require the person to get out the manual. Same with a Breach. You can ignore the hand, or you can go and poke it, and then you fight a lot of monsters, then it goes away. Sure. And so these kind of things here, while... They could be confusing to people who want to deeply understand them and read all the wiki pages, hopefully a self-explanatory on the surface. Yes. However, of course, there are many mechanics there which are complicated and do require Googling beforehand, and we try very hard to limit the amount of those. Yes, and now we have a help system. That is true. <laughs> Thank you, Nick. <laughs> um, uh, we've got another one. This is, a, this is an interesting one. I like this question. Um, this is from Akazaki. If Path of Exile didn't exist... Oh, actually, there was one... I, I wanted three... Game design concepts from, from ARPGs. Ah. Okay, I think it's critical that it's an online game. ARPGs have to have progress where you can say to someone else, I got this item and you didn't, and you can't yep. cheat to get it. Mm. Because that means that when you go home, you're going to gain something in the game. And mm -hmm. this is like collectible card games. You end up with more cards than you had before. But the ability to trade those is important, right? The reason why I like Magic the Gathering rather than Hearthstone is because I could trade my cards to someone. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to because I'm hoarding them. But right. I could do if I wanted to. The and value, so, even if it's unrealized, is important. Yes. You get to feel rich within your game without yeah. necessarily having to be rich in real life. Yeah. Do you feel like uh, we've added Solar Cell Found mm -hmm. as a play mode? Do you think, feel like that has um, influenced the design direction of Path of Exile though? In Solo Cell Found, you can still trade items by taking that item out of Solo Cell Found. Okay. So if you find a mirror, that represents four or five characters' worth of gear that you're going to get eventually, just not sure. in Solo Cell Found mode. Um, yeah, this, I, I'm very pleased with how Solo Cell Found is done because it lets people who choose not to engage in trade have a way of scoring their ability, and that's all. It's not trying to diminish trade. It's merely sure. saying some people are never going to want to trade. Yeah. And so for those people, there's now a scoreboard of them saying how far they got through the game without doing it. Fair enough. Um... This is the Akazaki question. If Path of Exile did not exist, what would each one of you 
what would you be doing? Um, where, where would you be doing in a world without Path of Exile, basically? I don't think I would have got into game development. Because as I mentioned in the previous podcast episode, it was more a matter of not wanting to make any game, whatever it's going to be. It was a matter of us saying, we think this game will have a market. We think we can do this game well with our knowledge mm -hmm. and make a good game of it. And if Path of Exile hadn't been made or if it had failed or whatever, I'd just be doing some boring programming stuff. Who do knows? You, do you still do programming at all? Not so much because I'm too busy recently, but I have done recreational programming when I can do. Yeah. It's fun. But what do you work on? Um, I've actually been doing some like lower level stuff recently. In fact, a thing that I have picked up is digital electronics recently, like making small circuits and that kind mm. of stuff. That's not programming per se, but I do prefer lower level, more kind of old school stuff rather than contemporary stuff because I'm too old to learn it. Like the computer science-y stuff. Yeah. Interesting. It's a lot of fun. What kind of circuits have you, like, are, are, is it like those kits that you can buy and like solder all the wires together and oh, stuff? Or It's currently just a pile of breadboards, resistors, small um, ICs from the 70s and mm. LEDs and stuff, but I've only barely started this, so That's cool. I'll talk about it in the future once I've made some cool stuff. I always liked doing the, like, kits you'd get from, I guess Dick Smith's doesn't yeah. exist anymore, but... I I, um, I had one of those when I was a kid. Those are so much fun. You make some switch and it turns a little light on and you're like, yeah. I made one that was like a spider that crawled across the floor what? and had like... Um, That's hardcore. Well, I mean, it's all it's all basically... It's it's functionally like color by numbers, mm. but with a soldering iron. Army of yeah, robots starter kit? Yeah, basically. From what, from what I remember, you get those kits and there's like a, like a little booklet of different things that you can make out of it, right? And nope. Really? Not mine. Not Not yours. Mine was specifically build this robot oh, spider thing. Okay. Yeah, I had a little book of like all these different <laughs> things that you could do. So you could make something, and then, like I said, a little light, and you turn it on, and you go, oh, that's cool. Or you, there's ones with like little motors or something like that. And right. Yeah. So for a ninja or uh, sort of? No. I was more of a Lego kind of guy. Lego's great. Yeah, just Lego's putting like cool. blocks together. Jonathan's been getting into Lego recently. Oh. Um, have you not seen his desk? Oh, yeah. No. I saw he's got some crazy lego stuff on his desk it's, he's, he's it's moving cool. house so he brought the stuff into work where it can be unmolested you know the, mm. just don't touch it <laughs> so that's why his Bring office into is a room with filled. 100 people yeah, yeah. no one's gonna <laughs> no one will touch jonathan's lego <laughs> um he's got a giant saturn 5 rocket oh is that lego yeah huh i thought it was like something you made in high school or no no and he's also I didn't know that was lego everything on his desk not everything like his computer isn't lego he didn't make a, a lego monitor mm. but yet yeah that's <laughs> that's a future endeavor um he's got like a car that that's made of uh lego technics i think mm -hmm. and he's got like a, a crazy mining thing yeah, yeah. Oh, this yeah. giant german mining crawler whatever they're years, called years ago we were talking about in the old office having a, a lego shelf where we just make some lego stuff and put them on the shelf mm -hmm. and i got like really into this idea but the old office had no room for it so i was really looking forward to moving and then totally just Never, never did anything about it. Hmm. We could put some space aside in the rec area for that. Yeah, yeah, we should totally do that. Near where the vintage gaming area is. Mm. Yeah, yeah. We're hardly using our vintage gaming area anymore. <laughs> Thinking it's sad people aren't watching enough movies in the office. Yeah. Like we watched yeah. Dread, and that was awesome. Uh, that yeah, was. Then years went by. Yeah. Well, so we've been talking about possibly doing a screening of the room mm. in advance of um, the disaster artist. Yeah, yeah, that's the one. Uh, I keep calling it the masterpiece because that was the original. Oh, right. Title. But the book is called The Disaster Artist, so yeah. I don't know what's wrong with my brain. That projector is actually a 3D projector. No. What? what? Seriously. If you get 3D glasses and I don't know which type it uses, it might be the polarized ones. Okay. But it will technically let you, let you watch 3D movies. That's awesome. I had no idea. Oh. Okay. Cool. 3D The Room? I, yeah, I don't think that exists. <laughs> Although they did shoot Should. it with two 
with two like cameras at once. So <laughs> they, I, I don't know if it was exactly shot kind of for three D, but they shot it on film and um, HD video or whatever at the same uh, time. Like they, uh, like that whole. You should read about the making of that. It's it's amazing. I'm just gonna watch the movie. Yeah, you could do that too. Um, are there any hobbies other than uh, we know you're like a very fond collector of magic cards? Um, are there any other hobbies that you you partake of? That's a relatively busy hobby. Yeah, that's you. <laughs> that's true. Um, um, I, I've recently started the digital electronics stuff, but yeah. that's yeah, not got far enough yet. Okay, so those will be the two hobbies. Okay, what and got you interested in electronics? Uh, I saw a YouTube video where a guy made some pretty cool stuff using just simple components, and it got me to realize that I did all that in computer science. Like, I theoretically know what's needed. Like, right. I could theoretically get a big piece of paper and draw out how it should all work because it's in my mind somewhere. So wow. I figured, well, let's test that out, you know? Yeah. Like, uh, is it the sort of thing where you have to calculate the resistance of the circuit and all of that stuff? And See, it, that's and... the problem. That I'm really bad at, yeah. right? I understand the digital side. Like, if you do it abstractly, like AND gates and OR gates and that kind of stuff, yeah. when it comes to the fact that your AND gate's going to want a certain amount of voltage right. because it's a chip that does AND operations or a pile of diodes that do it, and then I have to work out how am I going to get the voltage down to that level. Yeah. And theoretically, I've done that in school, but that's before the cutoff mm-hmm. when I started paying attention. Yeah. And I remember in ninth grade, we did like some electronics thing and they taught us all about how to like read what the resistance was on the resistor and never told us why. <laughs> like they give us all of this like, you know how to do things. You just don't have the context for why this is good. And so all of that knowledge just oh, man. slipped I managed- away to find a pack of resistors of different resistances from Hong Kong for a dollar, including shipping. That's... 600 resistors for a buck. <laughs> oh, eBay is crazy. Yeah, it <laughs> really is. Uh, yeah, I, I love shopping on eBay. I brought some garbage there, and I'm just not yeah. going to get into it. I've never bought any. <laughs> Holy shit. Thanks for bringing it up. No, tell, yeah. us, tell us what you bought. What'd you buy? Just some garbage. I brought Why would you buy someone else's garbage? Yeah. <laughs> Yo, it was this so big cheap. bag of garbage. No, and... it, it's so crazy because you can find resistors, socks, keyboards and the postage is free if yeah. i was to buy that in the country what? like postage alone is mm. even more expensive locally than yeah. it is to get something from china that's it, true madness there's uh, a podcast i like to listen to called planet money mm. and they did a series where they made and distributed t-shirts and they followed every step of the from like cotton production all the way to shipping to your door and they did a cost breakdown of each step mm. and from the t-shirt landing in the country and going to like a post office, like the, from the point that it gets to the post office, to the point that it gets to your door, mm. the, you know, four kilometers, whatever it is, is by far the most expensive step. Oh, yeah? Yeah. By like a huge margin. Huh. I, I don't understand how you can get things so cheaply from, from China. It the, doesn't um, make sense to me. The shipping is subsidized by the government. Oh, yeah? Oh, really? I just assumed it was like bad labor practices. <laughs> By the New Zealand government. <laughs> By the Chinese that you government. were taking no. advantage of. Yeah. I mean, everyone <laughs> implicitly does it. You don't really have a choice in some, yeah, some areas. Like, you can't buy a phone that was, you know, all, some of those components, all, the materials have to be mined out of these horrible mm-hmm. mines in, in African countries. And you just, that's the only place those materials exist. So you're part of the problem. Good job, Blake. <laughs> what, what am I going to do? <laughs> Not buy an iPhone? Come yeah. on. <laughs> it's true. That's really like kind of hard to exist in the tech industry without a smartphone yep. um this is from this is a question from high on 
What book or film, and I'm going to skip the or game because we already know the answer to this, had the strongest impact on you in terms of inspiration and is a big part of who you are today? So book and film because we already know Diablo 2. So this is tricky because the question is not name a book and film you enjoyed. It's no, which one has the strongest which one's had the biggest impact. That's tough. When I was a kid, I really loved the sci-fi series called um, by Arthur C. Clarke, the Rendezvous with Rama series, mm. to the point where I read that like five or six times during high school. How so big that, was that series? It's four books. The final three That's were ghostwritten by some other guy as well, Gentry okay. Lee. And um, that series, I suspect, had an influence on me due to the fact that I um, read it so many times. Like It's very much about wonder and exploration mm. as opposed to you know fighting, for example. Right. And so that is a book series that I suspect influenced me, but in no way has it really affected Path of Exile. I mean, it's a space book series. Right. Um, that's a good question with movies. I don't know. There aren't any, there aren't any um, movie series that have... I'm just going to go with The Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Yep, fair enough. Um, are there any games that would surprise people that you've enjoyed? Well, I mentioned DDR on the last podcast. Yeah, that's true. That was a surprise. Yeah. I really liked Lemmings 2 when I was a kid. Okay. Did I ever tell you I met uh, the creator of Lemmings 2? Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. He was a nice guy, but he made terrible games after that. You know they made GTA, right? Yeah. and But then he, they also made APB. So. Ah. You ever hear about that, you know that uh, famous documentary that showed Lemmings jumping off a cliff? Uh, yes, the Disney one where they... Yeah, yeah. Do you yeah. know that wasn't real? People were act- yeah. pushing yeah. them off a cliff? Yep. That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, back then people were like fraudulently making yeah. documentaries. It was a big deal. Um, I remember hearing about... Uh, they. I, I remember listening to interviews with like the people who worked on that film. Oh, man. messed up. Yeah. They're just like, yeah, we just pushed... They wouldn't go over the cliff, so we just pushed them. Here's a crazy thing that I learned recently. This is only tenuously related to anything we've been talking about. You know the movie Milo and Otis? Yeah. First of all, tons of cats and dogs died during mm. the making of that movie. Oh, really? Yeah. Bummed but me out. besides that, that was a Japanese movie. Dude, I only just found what? that out like this year as well. What? Yeah, yeah. Isn't that crazy? I yeah. had no idea. I always thought it was like the most English movie ever. Eng- English? Yeah. I was I was like positive it was American. Well, I may have been influenced because I watched it at my grandparents' place who were very English. So okay. I just assumed <laughs> <laughs> it was English. Everything they had. I don't remember English. their accents. Were they? I had. They had American accents in the version I saw. Oh, okay. Well, I don't know. If you already knew that Milo and Otis was a Japanese film, tweet at Front Seat Cast mm. hashtag Milo and Otis is Japanese. What? That would be. That's good. Good hashtag. Let's get that trending. Is that a thing? What it's trending? trending? A thing? Yeah. 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 Okay, Things still trend. Yes. Huh? Things do still trend. Okay. Good. Um, sometimes I only find out about things that have happened in the news because of trending Wikipedia articles. That's how I get most of my news is through the trending Wikipedia articles. <laughs> Wikipedia. <laughs> Wikipedia. Yeah. That's... It's about as I've neutral that. It's about as neutral as you can get yep. <laughs> nowadays as far as news goes. Um, Where do you see trending Wikipedia things? Is it like Wikipedia's f- like front page or something? Because I've um, never been to that. It's on the app, on the Wikipedia app oh, okay. on your phone. I was going to joke that it was on the app, but the fact that it is an app scares me. <laughs> of course there's an app. There's an app for everything, except for Path of Exile. So when's the Path of Exile app coming? What do you want us to do? <laughs> there are a bunch of Path of Exile apps that That's other true. people have made. Yeah. Um, I reckon like an official tree 
planner on your phone would be pretty cool. We tried hard to make it so that all the various bits of the site will work acceptably on phones. Mm. Maybe we haven't succeeded in all parts of that yet, but the goal was just have a website so it works in everything. I mm. think they work. They're just weird to like... Mm. The, the resolution doesn't scale properly yeah. and stuff. We don't have a lot of phone development expertise no, in Office. I think, Severn, you made a phone game, right? Uh, yep. Just, yeah. just Fern, whip up when an are you app making, for us. Uh, when are you making <laughs> just whip our... up an app. Oh, yeah? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when are you making the Path of Exile mobile action RPG, yes, Severn? Uh, Chris, once you give me the go-ahead. Oh, Is this called the goat head? Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> what we'll call it. Callback. Um, all right. Uh, we've, there's a question we haven't asked you yet that we I think are it's mandatory on this podcast, which is leftover pizza, hot or cold? Either. Ooh. Just what is like, like closest to you? I don't like this <laughs> this this fence riding. You have to choose but, one. I mean what I mean is if it's if it happens to be hot, which it generally doesn't, <laughs> then I'll eat it. <laughs> if you stumbled across hot leftover pizza <laughs> one thing you have you, to consider that'd be fantastic. Question okay. your decision making. <laughs> so <laughs> I never cook vegetables. I eat vegetables, okay. and I never cook them. Right? Every type of vegetable that I enjoy is one which I can just have. Like if I buy beans, I'll just eat the beans. Sure. If I buy broccoli, I'll eat the broccoli. Carrots, cauliflower. Raw broccoli. Yeah, raw, raw broccoli is the best. It's, it's actually pretty good. Yeah. So I'll just eat because I'm lazy. without. Because yeah. if I have to cook it, I have to find a microwave, and then it's broken. and You know how it is, right? <laughs> cook, cook a microwave. <laughs> Get a new microwave, Chris. <laughs> but because of that, I can handle food when it's cold yeah i mean yeah it probably does taste better when it's warm yeah it there you go better when it's warm oh sorry verdict <laughs> verdict reached um you guys got any questions you want to ask um are you still drinking coke uh, a lot i gave up on soft drinks in august 2015 oh, oh wow, wow. Yeah. yeah that's incredible because when we first started getting drinks at the office mm. yeah it was pretty uh, bad yeah <laughs> yeah i well, thought Someone was going to go to hospital or something. Jonathan and I, a while ago, had a thousand-day bet for not drinking any soft drinks. So we went almost three years. That was a thousand days. And mm. I remember, this is going to sound terrible, but one of the best drinks I've had in my life was that first ice-cold real Coke mm. after having gone a thousand <laughs> days without any. Mm. problem is nothing will match that again. Ooh. you got to go another so thousand days. We're looking for a Coke it. sponsorship for this podcast. But I've been yeah, <laughs> a couple of years without any soft drinks now. Yeah. Nice. And is that just a thing you're used to? I was getting ab abdominal pains when I was waking up in the morning, like 4 or 5 a.m. I get woken up with pain and I couldn't work it out and eliminating soft drinks made it go away. So oh. that solved that. Oh. Nice. Have you thought of coffee? I don't drink any caffeine, really. I mean, I'll have green green tea when I'm in China, but generally I don't drink caffeine in any form. Did you used to? Well, it was at the Coca-Cola. Oh, right. Sure. But I, I don't drink coffee, no. Right. Is that intentional? Do you intentionally? I don't really like the taste of coffee. Sure. But specifically avoiding caffeine? No, it's just a just nice side effect. Okay. It normalizes my ability to sleep and stuff by not having any. Did you get yes. any like withdrawal symptoms from not drinking yes. Coke or anything? That was terrible. Yeah. <laughs> it was a couple of months. It was really bad. Oh, boy. Like headaches? Uh, no, it was just craving. A lot of craving. Uh, interesting. Because I, I get caffeine headaches. And Blake, I don't know. Have you, when was the last time you went without drinking caffeine? I, I, I don't. <laughs> Probably For, when I was like. 13. For listeners, he <laughs> he drinks, what, five coffees a day? No, I drink four. <laughs> Is it four? No, nah, it's more like, it's probably like three. It's three. How big? Like, uh, you know, the bowl lattes? If, yeah. If people the largest that. possible size? Yeah, yeah. It's, three it's of those. Three of those, yeah. Okay. Interesting caffeine-related story. So 
Every year at GDC, we interview journalists, and we do it at the Samovar Tea Lounge in San Francisco, which is next to GDC. Yeah. Right, so we go to the Samovar Tea Lounge, and whenever a journalist turns up and they get asked, because these are really pretentious teas, right? They get asked, <laughs> what do you want? And they kind of like, they look like they haven't slept in days. They slot themselves down in the seat and go, oh, like anything that has a ton of caffeine, mm, basically. Yeah. So they get given this really thick green tea that's full of caffeine. So that's the backstory, <laughs> right? So this year at GDC... Um, I haven't had any caffeine for a very long time at that stage because I haven't sure. been to China for a while. And, you know, that's when I have my green tea normally. So uh, the backstory is because they give you hot water otherwise in China, so I'd rather it taste right. something. Mm. So I turn up at Samovar to interview one journalist. And because, you know, we're taking a valuable space, we have to order something. So I just say to the lady, I'll get me a green tea. And then I drink the green tea. And for the rest of the day, I feel so weird, like incredibly wired, like in a way that like, why am I so awake? What the hell is going on? And yeah. it was only months later, looking back on it, that I realized that that's the full of caffeine green oh. tea yes. for someone who just hasn't had any caffeine for a year beforehand. Oh, wow. There's a big difference. Yeah. I think I have a hypersensitivity to caffeine. Um, and I've, I've had enough caffeine now that it's sort of dulled the edge down <laughs> that like I can handle normal amounts. But it used to be that if I had a coffee... I would feel anxious and jittery and um, and just generally unwell. Like, you just feel – you know when a cat has its back all hunched up and the mm. hair sticking out? That's I felt you? like that. Yeah. The We're human kind of equivalent of like a, a cat that's just had that happen to them. Um, so I know exactly where you're coming from with that. When we were in the U.S., there was a, we went to a, a really weird coffee place mm. where you had to – stand in line and choose a coffee by name and like they do you, do you know what i'm talking about which trip was it this was to la e3 yeah e3 um was that the place where we met the journalist yes yeah i remember the one that was an odd i'd never been to a cafe like this Wait, basically what, what is it is it a, like you choose a single source uh coffee or something that's like, yeah oh, pretty the... much but it was like the, it was like a, a whole bunch of different coffee machines as well oh and um like you, a person calls you over and you tell them what you want. Yeah. And then they make it in front of you and you just sort of stand that, there. That sounds a little bit like there's a, there's a coffee shop, uh, down the road here that has uh, a whole bunch of like single source ones that are like always names that I look at and can't pronounce. And yeah. they ask me what do you want? And I'm going like, oh, I'm going to look like an idiot here. And they've also got different brewing methods. So they've even got AeroPress, which is the one that, I'm big at on, on work. Um, and they've got like, uh, what have they got? Like nitro cold brew and Jeez. and like pour over and um, Chemex and, and all this kind of stuff. This place I don't think even had an option for like this the style of drink or, or brew. It was just the kind of bean. And I couldn't, for oh. example, I, I wanted just like a mocha. Yeah. And I think it was just a coffee. But you choose the bean type. If I'm if I'm remembering correctly, I was just buying an orange juice or something, so I don't recall. Yeah, it was weird. I wasn't wasn't fun. <laughs> Guys, keep it simple. Give me <laughs> give me options for mochas. If you open up a coffee place, just put mocha on the board. Doesn't matter. What do you think of the the place we go to? We uh, Mojo that we just went to that they Hate have it. one called Steampunk. I mean, that's fine. Yeah, I, it's I don't. You're okay with that? <sighs> I don't know, man. It's. I get frustrated with places that take things too far. Yeah. And that one's right on the cusp. Right. Like, there's the... It's less hipster than the other place you like. Oh, yeah. Blake loves hipster coffee. Yeah. So does Severn, actually. 
Uh, shit, no. no I, <laughs> you liked, I you actually liked. hate it. What about Remedy? <laughs> that was cool. <laughs> but that's all I'll, I'll Rem- give it. Remedy wasn't cool. You know, for, for listeners, Remedy is like, it's got uh, old board games on the walls and old books and like an old arcade machine and, and all the people serving there have like mad tattoos and stuff like it's yeah it's, it's that it's and that there's kind like of hipster. 15 people in the kitchen which is about yeah i don't know three by three feet yeah and well <laughs> even the even the uh like the the dining area the drinking area is seat, tiny and the seat one of the seats is a snowboard yeah one of the seats is a snowboard all the seats don't match all the seats look like they're from like like 50s school what i hate about that place is it's in one of the busiest spots in auckland yep but it looks like it's being run by a homeless person. Yep. Yeah, the, the seating outside is uh, crates with, like, potato sack on top of cushions. <laughs> Just makes me angry. Just, guys. I love that place. I, I decided it's no good for, like, taking uh, too many people there because it's so small. There's no indication that, that all of the money that you're spending is being put back into the company. That's the problem I have with that place. Well, I think they're buying more knickknacks. <laughs> do, do you see how many Rubik's Cubes they've got? All those donated toys, those definitely donated <laughs> toys, the ones that all look broken. Yeah, I've seen them. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right, let's let's ask another question. Uh, oh, man. Ooh, this is a good question. I don't know if you'll actually, I don't know if you can answer this one, but let's ask it anyway. This is from a space-time density Modi. It's a good name. Um, what would a Path of Exile trading card game look like? That's a good question. Mm. I don't know if I can. No, we're kidding. I don't know. <laughs> Have you well, thought about it? Uh, I've had team members come to me with Chris, brilliant idea. We should make a trading card game. Uh-huh. As though it's something we haven't considered. Right. But mm. we, I mean, our reasons for not doing it are mostly that we don't bandwagon, if you see what I mean. Like VR came out, we didn't do it. Mobile came out, we didn't do it. There was the MOBA surge, we didn't do it. Right. We're trying very hard to focus on what we know. But that's not what the question was. What would it look like? Um, I personally feel that. Um, paper trading card games or the digital equivalents of paper ones are better in some aspects than the modern online trading card game like hearthstone or magic the gathering arena mm-hmm. or so on and the reason why is the ability to trade the trading cards because in hearthstone yes. and i assume magic the gathering arena which is the new one you kind of have your solo grind of getting the cards yeah which is a very controllable thing the developer can put out put out there where they understand the speed that you're getting them and so on whereas if there's trading suddenly someone's got all the cards in three hours what what happened that they, they get lucky did they trade did people give them to them and right you know you're in less control of the actual game mm-hmm. but it's more fun as a player to have cards that you can hold over other players again yes. the whole items are tradable thing is important so i believe that a trading card game with actual trading is probably the kind of thing we do mm-hmm. having said that um i don't think it's something our company will necessarily branch out into funny story though so people make custom magic cards it's where they they mock it up with some art and that kind of stuff and it's, yep. uh, it's a popular thing that there's competitions for this online and so on so back in the day eric used to make some fake path of xr magic cards just to have fun you know make his own little custom set and so on and he'd post bits and pieces online to get feedback on these prior to us having announced the game mm-hmm. and so what's interesting is people looking back and going huh i found this art you know custom magic card forum from years ago with these cards here that are like you know, if we'd have noticed that was there, it would have technically been spoilers of Path of Exile right. stuff. Because you have like a Chevron wow. card, for yeah. example, you know, that kind of stuff. So a lot of the characters in the game have actually been prototyped up in that form by Eric huh. um, in advance, which actually helps with the world building to have a look at what minimal amount do we need to represent this character to right. get a point across and to get its theme across and so on. That's a cool... I'd never thought about using like 
functionally a card as a um, a planning tool. Mm. That's that's very interesting. Yeah. And there are steam trading cards for Path of Exile. That's true, mm. and we, they have art that doesn't at all <laughs> represent what happened in game. Yeah, I've actually never seen the Chevron one. Is, is particularly weird. Yeah. Do, do you remember any flavor text from Eric's oh. mock-up cards? Is that? Oh, I'm sure he still has the cards for us to check. Oh man, I I didn't even know about this. Yeah, it's. It was really cool, actually, seeing some of this stuff. Hmm. I remember discussions with him of how we would do waypoints as lands. Like, does the waypoint swap itself out for another one in your deck? Because the mm. idea is the players travel to a different waypoint mm. and those kind of discussions. That's awesome. I mean, that's mostly for fun because we all, all enjoy playing Magic. And, of yeah. course, you know, it's, wizards can come up with their own designs. They don't need our help. What's your? Do you have a, a favorite Magic set? I like all the cards. <laughs> um, I, I like <laughs> all the very... Huh? I like older sets quite a lot. Okay. Do you yeah, have a, a particular one that resonated with you? Oh, anything from the era when I first started playing around Revised, which was back in 1994 or so, is very special to me. So all the stuff around that, even though many of the cards are objectively way too powerful or objectively way too terrible, um, that's really cool. Okay. Um, more modernly, I like the, the first Zendikar set, which came out, I mean, coming on like 10 years now, but that one was, yeah. that one was a lot of fun theme-wise. Mm. The landfall. Yeah, they mm. had land. And the concept of getting hidden treasures in the packs where they took right. a whole bunch of valuable original vintage cards and put them in the packs. So I persuaded myself, it's going to be me who opens one of these. I'm going to open one. So I turned up at the pre-release. Now, it's very important to know that the Newland pre-release started half an hour before the other ones in New Zealand. Because I wanted to be known that I was the first person to open one of these in the world at a pre-release <laughs> event. Because New Zealand's ahead of all the other times. Uh -huh. I checked. There are no pre-releases in Tonga or Samoa. <laughs> if there were... <laughs> Well, then we'd have to would find out if the cards were opened there. I was going to say, yeah. I thought you would fly over there. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, I'd persuaded myself I was going to be lucky and open one. Then when I when I opened one of these old valuable cards in one of the packs, I then had to check to see if I was the first person to have done so legitimately as a mm. consumer. Because, of course, they would have tested some sure. packs to open them out. Anyway, I, this is all bullshit. It might not have actually been the first person. But, yeah, it's... Uh, what did you get? I got a Savannah. It's a revised dual land. That's pretty yeah, good. It was good. I yeah. gave it to one of our staff for their birthday a few years later. Whoa. Nice. I was like, that's a well, good He gift. needed it for his EDH deck. <laughs> Who is this? Uh, Mark? It was Mike Fitzgerald. Ah, yeah. of course. Okay. Cool. Um, did, did you meet Brian through Magic or I met Diablo? Brian through Diablo 2. Oh, okay. And then you just happen to hear that he's like a yeah. legend. That's I, Brian Weissman. That's the correct. Yeah. Magic the Gathering Hall of Famer. Indeed. So yep. he, yeah, technically not Hall of Famer. Oh, there, there is a Hall of Fame that he mm. isn't in, but he is very famous for his yes. own things. He pioneered basically control as a as an archetype in Type 1 back in the day. So I, did, I was actually taking a break from Magic by then. I stopped when the Homeland set came out in 1996, and I was, you know, getting into high school and girls and that kind of stuff and didn't want to play Magic anymore. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah. yeah. And then in university, when, um, you know, I was definitely serious with, the person that would eventually become my wife and mm. didn't have to care about girls anymore i got back into magic so <laughs> it's kind of one or the other it really is one or the other you can't do both <laughs> have you ever tried to get her into magic <laughs> oh she's she's played at like pre-release tournaments and stuff she couldn't handle it she plays very methodically and doesn't like to be on a clock and pre-releases mm. are all about getting a oh, lot of people right. to have a lot of games that's true i i brought carrie to a pre-release one time um and it was so hot that she almost passed out okay does she cry because vicky cried <laughs> oh, I don't think she cried. No, but what? she was she was I definitely jo uncomfortable. Joyful tears. <laughs> no, she, she was stressed out by the uh, by the, the the clock. But what's awesome yeah. is now there's a guy who was playing against her. Oh, I can go up to him and go, you know, bear in mind, like you know, I'm a larger guy with a jacket and a shaved head, and I can go, you made my wife cry. Oh. <laughs> 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 
And then when you fought him, you fought him with cards? No, no. <laughs> he, he and I actually did get to play together about six months earlier in the finals of a tournament. It was a Pro Tour qualifier uh-huh. where the winner gets to go to Japan to represent New Zealand. Well, and I remember, I mean, he's much better than me, much, mm-hmm. much better than me. Like, I had no chance. The fact I was even in the finals is a lucky fluke, and there's a long story behind that. But I was saying to him, dude, if I win this trip to Japan, I am not going. I'm not going to represent New Zealand because it's an obligation to have to pay to take your wife. And he says, oh, no, no, my wife wouldn't be keen to go. So anyway, he wins the tournament, and um, his wife was definitely keen to go. So he won having to pay a couple of thousand dollars to take her over to Japan. (laughs) And bear in mind, the nature of the trip as well Mm. is that um, the nature of the trip is that you're having to, like, do a magic tournament. And so you can't really travel around and see stuff with your wife unless you really just spend extra money staying there. So winning a magic tournament is very cool to get to go to another country, but it's also an obligation to have to spend money in that country if you're taking a family member with you. Yeah, that's true. Um, talking about board games, are, are there any board games you've played recently that stick out? I played a whole bunch of Catan a couple of years ago. Okay. Yeah, I got into a play group of Catan with my brother and uh, Mike Fitzgerald, Jonathan, and so on. Mm-hmm. And we tried the uh, the Game of Thrones board game. We played that once. I was a really bad Lannister. <laughs> See, I didn't realize... Yeah, I did. <laughs> like, I didn't realize that catapults had no defensive capabilities. So okay. I bought the largest army of catapults around King's Landing. And then someone came in with like one knight takes the whole lot so the problem is now they from their starting position have wherever they started with and all of the king's landing stuff yeah then they win because they just you know this two-hour game is over in 15 minutes because i didn't know to build defensively Uh yeah interesting that was quite bad i was accused of handing him king's landing (laughs) (laughs) how does that game work is it like is there um, an an analog you you can you open the box and there's a piece of paper that well i don't know if there's a piece of paper this is just my mind which is wrong but either way you end up on youtube watching the video of how to play <laughs> okay. for half an hour because yeah it's quite complicated yeah but um yeah it's it's kind of like a super complicated version of risk basically okay. with more different units and different rules have you have you played much risk uh, at christmas with my family occasionally the game's frustrating i used yeah. to really like it and then i played against um a guy who figured out that you all you have to do is conquer a continent hold that continent indefinitely mm-hmm. while you build up troops mm-hmm. and then just sweep the board at once once you get a critical you're also, mass you're also if you can start in australia and then move out from there uh i don't think he started in australia i think he held the u.s southern america is good mm. because you can expand um sorry, if you hold north america you can expand into southern america by yeah. only adding one exit mm. that you have to defend which is nice. yeah holding asia that's... though like you can't do that yeah that's, that's impossible yes it's yeah. a fool's errand mm. trying to hold Asia. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. Let's have a look at another question from one of our, our listeners. Um, ooh, what games are you looking forward to playing when they come out? Are there any games you're looking forward to? So this is a tricky thing. A couple of years ago, I realized that there weren't very many games that have been developed that I'm aware of that I really wanted to play. Mm. And like, there are specific ones. Like, for example, the game Satellite Rain that was made by Five Life Studios in Australia, which is a spiritual successor to um, Syndicate and Syndicate Wars. Mm-hmm. I very much look forward to playing that. Likewise, I look forward to playing the Binding for Isaac expansion that came out recently. But then I didn't have time to actually play either game. Right. I spent a long time looking forward to Black Desert Online, the MMO, hmm. the Korean one that was being yep. published in America, and then played it for like three hours. And in no case do I not like these games. I just then have work to do. Right. So it is kind of disappointing looking forward to something. That Black Desert game, how much of that three hours was spent crafting your character? The character creation tool is amazing in that <laughs> game. <laughs> it's almost too too much to take. Yeah. I think. 
I had to basically just hope that I can change it later if I care, and yeah. then just go with something. Mm. Yeah, that that game is that game is interesting. It's been doing pretty well. Mm. Um, you played a little bit of that, right, Blake? Yeah, I haven't I haven't played any more, but it was it, it was it, it's it, kind of overwhelming. Yeah, you said it was like tutorial after tutorial after. Mm. Yeah, tutorial. I don't even I don't even know if I'm out of the tutorial yet. How yeah. long did you play for? Uh, probably like three hours, three or four. That's pretty hours. intense. Yeah, but that's all still tutorial. I don't. I think it's the tutorial. It feels like it's a tutorial. There, like, there are two reasons I think why that happens. The first is they have this character, this like black smoke, yeah, thing, who will tell you what to do for quite a lot of the way through the game. So yeah, that's not re- that's like a soft tutorial where he's always giving you some kind of advice. Oh, you need to be going and doing yeah. this kind of stuff next. But there's also the ability to press a key for your character to run to where you're meant to be at any time. Mm-hmm. So like, oh, you have a quest to go kill goblins over there 15 kilometers away. So in World of Warcraft, you'd have to go and trek your way over there, mm. learning about the world, finding out how to get places. And in Black Desert, you press the key and watch, well, don't watch your character run because you're on YouTube doing something else or <laughs> waiting for them to mm-hmm. get there. And so the combination of the dude popping up and telling you what to do and the fact that you kind of don't have to think when you travel from place to place, mm. you just press the key. Yeah. Um, both means that you don't have good connection with the world and that you feel like mm. you're in a tutorial the whole time. Yeah. I, I didn't like that um, it also has, if I, if I remember right, it had like one of those sort of golden trails to your quest goal. Mm. And I, I didn't like that because I liked the idea of exploring it seems like a lot of games have de-emphasized, like, it, for lack of a better word, freedom. Yeah. It, it's, <laughs> it's just like, here's this big open world, but we're really going to, like, tell you, no, these are the specific places you should go because there's this is, like, stuff to do. But I'd, I'd rather just, you know, like in Horizon, be like, oh, I've got a quest to go to the other side of the, like, the... Uh, the the continent mm. i never used fast travel i would just go there because i get into adventures along the way i don't mind fast travel um i do have a problem with spoon-fed gameplay mm. um in fact that was a question i was going to ask you which was uh how do you feel about like games that really hold your hand versus games that give you no instruction at all this is tricky because I prefer playing a game that gives you less instruction. I sure. like finding stuff out and feeling the mastery behavior mm. of even understanding simple things. But then that's not necessarily the best way to make a game. Some degree of hand-holding helps people who are on the edge actually get into it. Mm. And this is something we face with Path of Exile, where the tutorials are probably insufficient to achieve our goals of having more people play the game. Yeah. But we have to be very careful to not hold the hands too much that an advanced player starts off and... Um, you know, basically gets put off by it. Yeah. Like there are phone games that I'll install where I run it and the tutorials get plastered on top of each other and then they've got a promotion for today only for something which I don't understand because I haven't done the tutorial and then I close the game without ever actually playing even a second of it because they've held the hand too closely. Yes. And so I'm very hesitant before we do too much more hand-holding in Path of Exile but at the same time there are players who are quite close to making the intuitive leaps required to understand certain systems. Mm -hmm. Good unique item, by the way. Intuitive leap. Nice. <laughs> we fixed that on Xbox a couple of days ago. Good. <laughs> People who know what I'm talking about will appreciate that. <laughs> there is an exploit. Oh, we haven't even talked about 3.0. That thing. That's that, true. That's true. <laughs> well, how was it for you? Um, 3.0 was a significant project, partly because we had to release on three platforms as such. There was our regular version of 3.0, which was a handful by itself. Mm. And then there was the Xbox version, which was a complete 
you know, new version of Path of Exile, our, you know, first console port, it's a significant amount of work and a yeah. new experience for us. And then the China version, which has significant deviations in some ways from the um, from our version from an art point of view, you know, for local regulations and so on. Mm -hmm. And so doing all three of these simultaneously was a substantial undertaking. Um, I tried very hard to insulate as much of the team as I could from worrying too much about there being three versions. Like mm. people ideally just focused on the one they were working on. But from an administrative point of view, it was a significant headache having to schedule three projects together, especially because we have to, for various reasons, lock in release dates for like, yep. you know, multiple projects, at least one of them is going to have a firm release date, and that dictates the others, because no gamer wants to feel like a second-class citizen. You know, we can't exactly go and release, you know, um, a console or another country version of Path of Exile before our main international one, so that one mm -hmm. has to come first. And then, of course, scheduling betas and so on around it, and the disruption it causes to our three-month schedule that we're normally on means it was certainly quite an administrative undertaking to yeah. get it ready. Um, in terms of the actual content in there, I think the team did an excellent job. And I'm really pleased about this because I didn't do a lot on 3.0 myself other than the making sure that it got released part of it. Like, I didn't actually make any of the areas. In fact, I, mm -hmm. you know, it, it, it was a while before I'd even played through all of the stuff. And so I am really pleased that the team was capable of making such a good expansion without me touching any of it like I would have done for previous ones. Was that scary for you to step back that much from the content of the game? Uh, it was kind of a thing where I was too busy with my own work to even really think about the content of 3.0, but happy to see that whenever I checked in on it, it was you know mind-blowing in terms of the stuff the team was doing. Mm. And I should stress, like, Acts 6 through 10 were meant to be very close to Acts 1 through 5 in terms of content, right? Like, the initial mandate <laughs> yeah. is, make small changes, whatever we can afford, go, 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 we have to do it fast. And yeah. then the team delivered something that feels substantially different. And that's what the players deserve. They did deserve something that was as different as it was. Yep. But I was initially trying to sell something less than what they deserved in an attempt to get it done in a quicker way. Mm -hmm. So I'm very pleased that the team went and made a quality project. Mm -hmm. you know. And sure, it took a few months longer than we expected initially, but thankfully we were able to schedule all of that and it was released and successful and really big from a player numbers point of view. We did squeeze it in at the last minute. <laughs> that, was, um, that was fun. It was fun. <laughs> it was an experience. It was, <laughs> yes. Um, did you what what did you learn about scoping? <laughs> I think its scope was fine. It's what it needed to be. I sure, mean, you know, but then with the with Xbox and China alongside yeah. it. They we needed to release those as well. Mm. Like the, we we had to make our foray into console because it's the right time to do so. Yep. And we needed to release China because it had been in a beta form before that for a while while we were making while we were doing tests and so on. So it just had to happen that way and it did. Mm. And thankfully now those platforms are released and we can, you know, the, the community can reap the rewards of there being several versions of Path of Exile, which means ideally that we can continue to hire people and put more emphasis on, you know, additional content in the future. Mm -hmm. Which we can't talk about, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, we can't talk about no. the new content, but announcements coming up in the near future. Yep. Um, I, I have a question. I don't know if you can talk about it, but were there any like surprising restrictions for the Chinese version that you didn't expect? We were given a pretty good heads up by our contacts at um, our publisher about what kind of restrictions there were. So none of it was too surprising. But yeah, there's there's a lot of different restrictions on a per country basis. I mean, a lot of like, for example, um, Germany has its own restrictions on certain types of games, you mm -hmm. know, where like you'll see adaptations made where they change the color of blood and so on if the game's sold at retail. Yeah. And there's this kind of thing where you have to just be aware of the various local laws and cultural um, stuff. Mm -hmm. And so... A lot of the work getting the Chinese version ready isn't just um, 
isn't just making changes to the art. There's also compatibility stuff where it has to fit in with the publisher's framework and so on and make sure that it works well alongside their other games and, you know, integrates with various, like, logging and that kind of stuff so that they can operate it. Because mm. um, Path of Exile in China is being run by a team at our publisher rather than by us. Right. So they're handling day-to-day operations of it while we, you know, give them advice and help with problems. It means that they're the ones doing things like server administration and so on in their region, which is the best thing for their customers because it means they're being handled by a team physically located at the data center and so on. Mm-hmm. And so that's been a big difference for us because we've had to kind of give up control of some of the aspects we normally keep quite close to the chest with regard to running servers and so on. Right. Is that scary? Yeah, it's scary. But it's it's nice to see that they've put a competent team on it who are able to handle all this stuff. And it's a breath of fresh air that they can deal with any issues that occur. If there's like a networking problem somewhere in China that affects some of their users, they've got the right people they've dealing with us it, without yeah. us having to worry about how to talk to these ISPs that we can't communicate with. Right. Um, here's, a, here's another random question from one of our readers. Or listeners? Listeners. Can't read audio. Um, what's your favorite Magic the Gathering card? Do you have a favorite? Yeah, I like the card Maze of Ith, printed in the dark in 1993 or 4. It is a land that takes creatures out of combat. And yes. I always wanted one when I was a kid. So as soon as I got any income when I started university, the first thing I did was buy a few copies of it. Nice. And then since then, I've bought whatever copies I see of that card because it was not particularly expensive. Mm-hmm. So I have a lot of them now. Nice. Why do you like that card? I don't know. It's got cool artwork, which it's very strange. Mm-hmm. And... um. It just was iconic for me as a kid. So I noticed this a lot about people who return to collecting magic cards after a while, that they want the stuff that felt cool to them when they started playing because it's the era that they have the most nostalgia for. What was the um, first thing you can remember? What was your first gaming memory? My first gaming memory was when my parents brought home an Amiga when I was five years old. So it was Mm -hmm. in 1987. And this was a computer that we had at our house as opposed to one of the ones at school, which didn't really have any gaming stuff on them. And they were like black and green screen old BBC machines. But this Amiga one was color, lots of colors. And the first game I played was one called Animal Kingdom, which is basically a trivia game about animals. Mm. So that's the that's the memory I have on day one of that's the disc that's... they put in. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm trying to figure out what my first gaming memory would have been. It would have been probably Duck Hunt. What about you, Blake? Um, mine was uh, this weird game called... Um, oh, I can't remember what it was called. So, like temple adventure or something like that on a friend's PC. Yeah. Oh, yeah. What do you remember? What it. Like? You you you. It was like a platformer where you sort of navigated through a temple, and it was like, it was not. Um, it, it was very sort of Atari ish graphics, okay. like not even like a like a a, a platform like two D. Yeah, yeah, two D platform. Like yeah, it had. Very limited color palette. Sure. Uh, black, completely black background. Mm-hmm. Um, and you had to like jump over snakes and and, and stuff. Yeah. Sounds a little bit like, uh, was it Pitfall? Was that the first like kind of awesome platformer? Um, yeah, back sort of then? not. I mean, it was, Pitfall was more colorful yeah. than okay. this game. Yeah. So, Vern, do you remember what your first gaming memory was? It was GTA. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, we had a Commodore growing up. And so, yeah, loading tapes and <laughs> waiting for those things wow. to, to to load up. That that was probably the first we had. Do you remember what game it was? Uh, you know, Aliens was a thing, but I, a lot of them, no, I don't remember okay. any of their names. There was a really weird one. I think I may have mentioned this before. Um, 
was uh, an adventure game that took place on like a, I want to say like a space station. And it was one of those like go to or go north and, you know, um, pick up swords. Oh, a text That's, adventure. Yeah, it was, it was a yeah, text yeah. adventure, except it wasn't, this, wasn't... Had, this had images. Oh. And it was based on a sci-fi novel. And it had this like special metal called Hichi in it. Oh, and, it and I remember um, there was a thing where you could do slash wait or whatever. Yeah. And you could, uh, you could specify an amount of time to wait for. And if you waited long enough, everyone died. <laughs> and I just thought that was. There's probably a reason. Like, there's probably like, some, uh, some story started, for that. Like, I'm everyone... pretty sure everyone just like everyone just died of old age, and oh, food ran, food and water ran out. <laughs> Wait, eighty years. Yeah, that was literally <laughs> that was literally what you could do. Is it was like they had something. That's hilarious. Yeah, I thought that was really funny. Um, I really remember the game Commander Keen. Did you ever play that? Yes. Yeah. That was, it was um, id. Was it? Oh yeah. What yeah. Was it? Yeah. That was before they did uh, a Wolfenstein. Yeah, Carmack worked out fast scrolling on PC. That's right. Um, because before then, things loaded line by line, right? Yeah, their, their scrolling had to work inferior to how consoles did it. Like, they often did a screen at a time, for mm -hmm. example, or a tile at a time. Um, I'm out of questions, basically. You guys got any? Um, you, <laughs> you loved D2. Mm -hmm. But then what? you, like, you got to meet your hero. The, the creator, oh, yeah. David Brevik. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I got a chance to meet him as well when we came to the office. Um, how was he? Do, do you guys hang out? Yeah, I've seen David a few times since yeah. then each year. Um, we've done some promotional work for Path of Exile in China, and he's given us a lot of advice for that launch. So mm. we've had a couple of trips together, and I see him each time I'm in San Francisco for lunch. Yeah. And he's a great guy. Like, he's so humble, but yet so... Like, he definitely knows the things that... Um, that he did really well in Diablo and is proud of those. Mm. And so it's awesome hearing stories from him because he's had such a full career of all of the stuff pre-Diablo that he did at Condor. They ported a lot of games. They made a bunch of stuff. I mean, there, there was a lot of work there. Then he had the Diablo series that occupied, you know, a lot of his career, mm. followed by, you know, projects like Hellgate and Marvel Heroes mm -hmm. and so on that he worked on. He's working on some cool stuff now as a solo project, which I'm sure we'll talk about when he's ready. Mm. And there's, yeah, there's so much, there's so much cool stuff that's happened in his life where almost all of it is very, very, very interesting for me to hear about. So mm. I can just listen to the guy yeah. as, you know, as long as I can. Matt, yeah. Um, do you guys just love to kick back and talk design? Like, Yeah, he, he has quite different design ideas to me, which is really interesting to hear about. Like, very he's, cool. He's not the kind of guy where I'll say my stuff and he goes, oh, I totally agree with you. He, he will say what he thinks. Mm. And that's really important because it gives me a different perspective mm. on how to do that kind of design. Do, do you ever get that whole fanboy thing where you're like oh shit this guy is like a big deal i'm just gonna yes your opinions are awesome i'm sure he's <laughs> sick of me doing that <laughs> awesome. do you have any other like for lack of a better word heroes yeah i actually got to meet another one this year um david braben who founded frontier developments who made elite dangerous ah, and so on mm -hmm. so when i was a kid i'd literally read amiga magazines reading about you know the game frontier which inspired the name of his company and it would have him and his picture in it and he'd talk about it he initially made elite which was the 1984 space trading game that was like the first computer game with 3d graphics for example basically mm -hmm. I mean, at least there's some specific accolade that, that fits the description sure so meeting him this year at e3 which literally meant like bypassing security guards and getting up to him um <laughs> was an awesome thing i don't know if he has any idea like about path of excel or whatever but getting to shake his hand and tell him that he was my hero cool. was a big thing when at e3 at i was e3. there okay 
<laughs> you know how we were in the concourse with all of the meeting rooms, right? Yeah. Two uh, corridors away from us in the meeting room area, there was one that he had set up that he was in the whole time. Oh, I think you mentioned that. Yeah. yeah so I snuck out. That's cool. Yeah. Man. They weren't too happy about that. Because <laughs> they've got a schedule. Mine yeah, sure. And stuff. Yeah. Oh, well. That's what E3's for is for ruining your schedule. Yes. <laughs> Nothing going to plan. Um, How was E3 for you? Like, it was, we'll put it this way. Recently, a friend of mine completed a 100-kilometer run, and he was telling me about the feelings he had during the 100-kilometer run and how his feet would get sore, but he still had 30 kilometers to go, and how he was hating every day of it, and afterwards he thought it was awesome, but at the time he didn't. That's how I felt about E3. (laughs) Now, it sounds really terrible when someone tells you about a massive physical exertion thing for you to say, oh, that was like this gaming conference where I got to sit down. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, but um, it was really long hours. Like, there were... There were bad things that happened. Like, okay, so it was. Should we get into the E3 event? Sure, yes, absolutely. Okay, so I hear it. We we arrive and we've got our little room, um, which is in the meeting room area. So it's not for the public. No one's going to see it. And these meeting rooms are bare bones. They're boring. They're kind of like walls that are a bit dirty and that kind of stuff, right? right? You know, so it's made out of wall segments. So we sit there, yep. and our room is completely empty. And we've got a couple of TVs coming, but what are they going on the ground? Like, what are we going to do? We don't need oh, tables. Yeah. So Nick and. Jonathan and I have to sort this out. So we go to a local Target and spend 10 bucks on like a folding table and we need like a tablecloth on it so it doesn't look too terrible. We're taking the boxes of the TVs and putting them on the ground for the TVs to go on. And it's looking really ghetto. So we figure we can fix this by getting some really colorful beanbags. And then there's kind of an area for the Xbox version where the journalists can chill out on some beanbags and a slightly more like, you know, desktop PC environment over to the side with a laptop. So... We send Nick on an errand of, hey, so <laughs> seeing as you're here, you may as well help us go find some beanbags. And he goes, yeah. what, where? And, you know, it eventually works it out. I don't know how you found beanbags in the evening in yeah. LA randomly, but you turned up with them. Yeah. So we've got them at our hotel room and we need to get them to the conference. The problem is the conference is closed at this point. Like, you know, it's like midnight. So yeah. I cross the road with nothing. Like I'm carrying nothing with me because I expect to come back. And I say to the security guard, hi. So I'm an exhibitor and I need to get a lot of stuff into the conference because it's starting tomorrow morning and I want to do setup and I'm worried tomorrow morning is going to be too late. <clears throat> Can I bring it in, please? And she says, you know what? A lot of people are on the same boat. And while we've mm. been told to not let people in after midnight, realistically, people are coming in after midnight. So it's totally fine for you to get all of your stuff. And as long as I'm the security guard on duty, I'll wave you in and everyone's cool because, you know, you should be set up before the morning. So I say, I'll be back in five minutes. And she goes, good, I'm off for half an hour. So we're all fine. So I get the stuff and I figure I can carry it all in one go. So like, I think, <laughs> I think I dragged Jonathan along for this as well. Yeah. But we figure we've got three big beanbags and they're heavy plus bags of stuff like computer cables and yeah. a laptop and fact sheets and yeah. all sorts of heavy things that we need to take across power supplies and keyboards and switches and all sorts of stuff. So we load, laid our stuff up so we can barely move. We kind of shuffle out of the hotel. Like getting into the <laughs> elevator with the stuff is difficult. And we have to shuffle through. Like the, the people in the hotel are suddenly watching. Why are these guys carrying? And we're talking like really big, colorful beanbags. Yeah, they were primary colors. Bright, oh, uh, bright, huge beanbags. Yeah, decent sized ones because it's yeah. LA. So we, we get across the road, which is tricky because there's still traffic, even though it's late at night and past midnight. We get to the front door and we're like barely able to move because of the stuff. We're really sore by that point. We get into the place with the security guard as she waves us in. And then we have to walk the like 800 meters through yeah. this convention center to get to the hall that we're in. So we go along the hall. We finally get there and it's locked. Because uh, 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 like uh. that part isn't open. So then we're like, okay, do we 
leave the stuff here? Well, obviously <laughs> not, because it will be gone in the morning. Yeah. Do we sleep outside here? Like, what's happening, right? So we have to, like, shuffle back, which takes another 25 minutes. Oh, my God. Bleeding by the end of it, basically. Yeah. So the problem is that now the stuff's in our hotel room, so we have to repeat the shuffle the following day where there's 15,000 people outside lined up. Yep. Wearing Path of Exile shirts. Oh, very man. bright. So people are like, dude, that's the Path of Exile guy. Take a photo. Oh, so I'm sitting there like trying to check Reddit throughout the day. Yeah. You know, just to see when the dumb photo is going to But thankfully it didn't. <laughs> yeah. It was, E3 is surprisingly physically exhausting. Yeah. Because you're, I mean, it, best case scenario, you're talking to journalists mm. all day, every day. And you weren't able to days. sit down. Oh, yeah. No, that was, that was, yeah. Because um, we ditched, we ditched Nick at a separate booth to us because we we're showing. Path of Exile at both the Microsoft booth. They had the 4K version on the Xbox One mm-hmm. X. Yep. And we had our own booth where we were showing the 4K PC one and a regular Xbox version. Yeah. And so Jonathan and I were handling talking to journalists there while Nick manned the show floor. Yeah. Sorry. That's all right. <laughs> That's what I was there for. It, it was just um, E3. When you go to, when you picture E3, you picture like awesome new games yeah. and new hardware. And you imagine it from it's, a it's like, it sounds like Willy view, Wonka. Right? Yeah. yeah it, where it you're just like, going around looking at everything, not being. You're not an Oompa Loompa. You don't imagine yourself right. as an Oompa Loompa. Right. But also, you you kind of expect them to roll out the red carpet, probably. You expect right, to be yeah. like, oh, just, I'll pick a fresh game off the tree and taste <laughs> it, you know? like. Um, but in reality, there's, you know, two-hour queues for everything, yep. um, crowds everywhere, grumpy mm. security cards, car security, security guards, rather, um, uh, sweaty nerds who, honestly, guys... It's take a shower before you go to E3. It's, I got a bear hug from behind while I was walking along, and I thought this is seconds of my life left. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's pretty intense. Like especially if you, if I mean, I, I luckily am not very recognizable, um, but you you're fairly high profile, Chris, at least higher profile than me. So you were getting stopped quite a lot, and yeah, it's it's pretty intense. Um, yeah, there's. The tricky part is there's no time to actually see any of E3, really, That's true. because we'll be busy the whole time. And then before and after, like, when there are journalist appointments that you want to block in and the journalist schedule is full, you just schedule it for the morning. And then there's business talks. Like, yeah. I have to talk with everyone we're doing business with. Hmm. And that involves a meetup at some point. So you get the kind of, you're back, you're, you're waking up in the morning at 5 o'clock to get some business stuff out of the way. Then you're trying to get to E3 before it opens so you can be ready for the day. You know, make sure there's enough bottled water so hmm. you don't physically die. And bear in mind, there's going to be no internet there because everyone's cell phones are, like, you know, using all that all up. Yeah, so where yeah, we're in the concourse hall, there's just no networking. And, of course, there's problems happening in the office back in New Zealand throughout yep. the day that need attention. So all of that. You finish E3. You've got to pack up. And, of course, you can't leave expensive stuff necessarily there. So you've got to take laptops and Xboxes. You know, right. these, are, these are dev kits and so on. They can't be left around. Yeah, it's and pretty f- – you're, you're lugging stuff back and forth. Yeah. And it's your arms and legs are tired by the end of it. At so least. you finally get it stashed away. And then it's time to do the business dinners and then the parties and then the post-party meetings and stuff. And the parties are, like – we negotiated our chrono promotion that we did at the Twitch party or something like that. You know, it's mm. all about business mm. development. So you get back to your hotel room at two o'clock saying, I have to be up at five or Ooh. I could do my emails. <laughs> mm. Yeah. It's intense. It's fun though. Is, for a little while. <laughs> is, what, what would you do differently if you, if Not you go. went again? Not go. Um, it, <laughs> it's tough to say because it's one of the things where, Big games do these events for a reason. But with us based in New Zealand, and it's difficult to get enough staff over there, and we may be able to have the same impact from a journalist's point of view with a more pinpoint kind of approach of it. Mm. Like, we weren't trying to exhibit to the public at E3, just to the journalists, and it may have been better to just contact them outside of E3 time. Mm. So it was more of an experiment. And this was the first E3 in a while where they've opened it up to the public. So it Mm. was 
a very it was a different experience to even like previous years where there's still a lot of craziness but at least the, like it's not swarms of fans mm. um who are just there to have a good time yeah and i i totally appreciate that if you're a, a gamer you want to have a good time at e3 unfortunately e3 is not built for you to have a good time mm. e3 is built for you to stand in line for two hours because mm. normally there's just journalists yep the, the one thing that made it all worthwhile for us was the fact that Microsoft gave us a really good four-machine setup of Xbox One X's at their booth. We got a good position. We were able to show the game to a ton of people at their booth, and that made it worthwhile because normally we wouldn't go just to do our own thing. But here, Microsoft's putting a lot of effort in on their side to give us space. Yeah. So we wanted to make sure we did it justice with developers who can answer questions about it and see what people's reactions are and so on. Yeah, and I got to see like some of the things that had to be tackled for the Xbox version before mm -hmm we launched no like it was it was interesting seeing people playing a version that uh, we otherwise hadn't really seen people outside of the office play mm. there was some really good feedback yeah cool i think we're pretty much out of time thank you for for, for coming in chris you're welcome thanks very much great for guest. Having me, guys it was really cool you're welcome back anytime um if you've got any questions you want to ask us or we can potentially ask chris and then get back to you uh email frontseatquestions@gmail.com or tweet at us at frontseatcast facebook.com slash frontseatcast is our Facebook page. FrontseatGamer.wordpress.com is our WordPress page. YouTube.com slash FrontseatCast is our YouTube page. Um, you should rate us on iTunes and tell your friends. Uh, we're also part of the Australasian Gaming Podcast Network. That's hashtag AGP on, on Twitter. Um, we want to thank Leanne for our logo. Her Tumblr is LeanneBooton, B-O-O-T-O-N, dot Tumblr.com. Uh, we probably have a link somewhere. Yeah. Yeah, we do actually. On, and on um, Andrew, who works at GGG for our music, uh, he's got a website, not for nothing, n a u g h t for nothing dot com. Um, that's his band. Check, Check him out. out his album. Yeah, yeah. And rate it on iTunes, but yeah. rate us first. All right, cool. Well, we'll be back in a couple weeks or a week. A week, yeah. Something, a week. yeah. We'll be back. Bye. See? So no one's seen this shitty Transformers movie? I haven't seen it. I have a... I don't know, it's like four, I think? I have a mate that was like <laughs> hardcore into Transformers when he was a kid. Well, so was I, I guess. I think everyone. Everyone was. was. So so like, we've seen all no? of them. But like, this one is just... Nah, this is... Yep. This is, I can't even bother. Not even, even on the radar? Not even on the radar. It's Michael Bay's last one, though. So, ready for a reboot. Oh, is it really? Yeah, yeah. Shit, he really... He checked out like two minutes ago. Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> there's like... It's like King Arthur and stuff. Mm. Yeah. And this girl's quest or something to do something to like it was another movie that then Michael Bay or somehow fell into the Transformers lap and they're like, let's make this completely other movie a Transformers movie. I, I got 15 minutes into it. Yeah. And then I turned it off. <laughs> Dude, I was just looking for like good movies to put on. Oh, man. <clears throat> and yeah, that's it. Not a Couldn't even get through it. No. Wow. It did the worst of all the Transformers movies. Oh, that's good to hear. Yeah. And the weird, like, because, yeah. Because that was the weird thing with Transformers. Like, everybody hated them, but they always did really well.